0: That's BlueNile.com.
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative
0: encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Uh, Today we are going to challenge the assumption that the Victorians were all miserable and sulky, um, despite Queen Victoria's face obviously proving to the contrary for much of the latter half of the 19th century, we're going to prove that they had a sense of humour. We've got with us Bob Nicholson, who is a historian of Victorian popular culture and a reader in history and digital humanities. Uh, He also curates at Victorian Humour on Twitter, which if you don't follow, you absolutely have to because it's brilliant. It's all um,
2: old-fashioned jokes. Bob, hey. Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Oh, we all need a bit of comedy at the moment. How's coronavirus for you? How fed up are you now on a scale of 1 to 10?
2: Oh, I mean, actually, I quite like pottering around at home, so I, I'm quite enjoying it. Um, it's been weird for us because m- my wife qualified as a nurse like literally the week that their lockdown started and started working in a hospital. So I've just, she's been doing that. Then I've been sat at home tweeting about Victorian jokes. So it's been a, a kind of <laughs> weird contrast for us.
1: Yeah, I've got to say, I like your lot better than your wife's. Um, <laughs> yeah, I get, yeah
2: we're, we're kind of both heroes in our own kind of way I guess yeah,
1: exactly <laughs> um, okay right first of all let's I said so the obvious place to start this is tell us why this assumption and this stereotype that the Victorians are not amused is wrong
2: yeah well it, it's it, it's an odd one isn't it because if you think about Queen Victoria so this is somebody who sort of reigned for what 60 odd years and you ask people you know what is perhaps the most famous thing she ever said or did and that quote we are not amused comes back again and again and again and again but what i'm trying to prove in my research is that actually yeah that, that that is completely wrong that the victorians loved joking that telling jokes was a really important part of their culture that jokes were everywhere in the 19th century you know it's not just like one or two rare victorian jokes have survived there are millions of them and that actually it's a big part of their culture as big as comedy is for us now
1: yeah, I'm going to get into you with it, into it with you um, about whether or not they are the root of this famous British sense of humour and all the carry-on smut and everything that followed. But even mm. Queen Victoria herself liked to laugh, didn't she? She used to have those nonsense theatricals at um, Balmoral and Windsor and laugh her head off and the rest of the family would just sit there and go, this is not even good.
2: Yeah, it's, it's so I was, I was looking you know, at her diaries, which are just fascinating, and I just, I just started putting in words like laugh, joke, comedy, humour, anything that might signal her having fun. Uh, there's just loads of instances of her like recording down jokes that people told her in conversation or you know going to the theater and saying oh yeah there were lots of new jokes as if she was sort of keeping track of her favorite ones so yeah yeah I mean to be fair like most of those references are earlier in her life where she was a bit more cheerful but Mm. yeah in general you know she she enjoyed a laugh too and in fact if if you google Queen Victoria smiling there are photographs I mean so unnerving because we're so used to seeing her looking quite sort of sour and glum but there are photos of her laughing um and, it, yeah, it completely changes your perception of her.
1: I'm on Google right now doing
2: this. that very Yeah, it, it's, it's <laughs> well worth it. Um, in fact, yeah, just there, there are quite a few good Twitter threads and, and galleries online just of photos of Victorians laughing. Because yeah. we're so used to seeing them in that kind of dour photo on the mantelpiece, those kind of you know gloomy patriarchs staring down at us disapprovingly. But actually, yeah, there are tons of them laughing and goofing around. And, yeah, it's, it's good. You'll see them in a whole new light if you've only ever seen them in that kind of slightly serious pose. Mm. So what did they, uh, what did they j- tell jokes about? Oh, well, I mean, obviously, like, literally everything. Uh, this is my sort of, I feel like my sort of challenge now is that if, if somebody says, oh, do the Victorians tell a joke about a certain subjects? Usually within about an hour of digging in archives, I can find something, you know, where they were, where they were cracking jokes about that. So a li- little bit of everything. The most common stuff, th- there's um, a lot of them are sort of themes that would be familiar with more modern comedy, or maybe like comedy from the 1970s. There are a lot of mother-in-law jokes. There are a lot of um, jokes about lawyers, you know, the kind of predictable villains of comedy, um, but also like kind of slightly more obscure stuff. So that there are lots of Victorian jokes about poets, for instance, they're, they're the butt of a lot of Victorian jokes. Amateur poem, amateur poetry. It's like uh, gets mocked relentlessly in the 19th century.
1: Got so many questions. What about the old Irishman joke?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of those. Um, and yeah, and, and inevitably, lots of jokes about, about other races and yeah. classes. So there's, there's, there's tons of, of that kind of stuff in the 19th century, too. Um, yeah, so yeah, a, a lot of, of, sort of uh, yeah, I guess the, the formula for an Irish joke in the 19th century is the same as it was 100 years later, really. It's usually, um, you know, an Irishman juxt, you know, doing something slightly foolish, juxtaposed next to an Englishman who is sort of presented as normal by comparison. A lot of those.
1: Is there the equivalent of the Essex girl jokes?
2: It's interesting, I haven't seen something that, that's an obvious parallel for that, yeah. there are lots of jokes about, about class, uh, and I suppose I'm trying to think like, what the comparison would be for that. that there are certainly like jokes about um, slightly dim-witted aristocrats who are kind of you know, dressed up to the nines, thinking they're all fashionable and then making a fool of themselves. So that's the kind of trope that, that comes up a lot of the, the masher is the kind of the character then. But yeah, not quite, I haven't seen them directed at, at women quite as much in the 19th century.
1: They don't have stand-up clubs and things do they and where do they tell their jokes and why and and how is humor incorporated into everyday life in victorian era
2: oh blimey right That's, <laughs> it took me about an hour to answer that question i think uh, it says a stand-up uh, comedy not not as we would know it but certainly you know like musical um musicals and musical comedy is sort of it, it includes elements of stand-up so you know a lot of musical is is about um you know it's always about singing but they often had sort of patter comedians um who would Sing a song, but then they would do like a minute or two of what we, we would think of as stand up in between. Um, and that's particularly, particularly American comedians who came over at the UK were, were famous for doing that. So I guess that, that's something equivalent to stand up. But people also told jokes. I mean, if you think about all the places that, that we crack jokes now, you, you'll find the Victorians doing it too. So, you know, dinner parties, jokes are really, really, you know, a big part of uh, dinner table conversation, but also, you know, at pubs um remember going to pubs um you know cracking jokes there (laughs) yeah Yeah. um so places like that but also like you know on on omnibuses at work literally everywhere it's kind of it's just part of that keeps the kind of social wheels turning doesn't it it's just a thing people do and the victorians are the same you find it literally everywhere
1: where do these jokes come from
2: yeah this this is the thing i'm most fascinated by because it's such a mystery isn't it if you think about like the last joke you heard somebody tell you nobody really knows where on earth it came from, you know, and where and, and who writes them. Jokes are these kind of often quite sort of ownerless things, you know, we don't really know where they come from, but I've been trying to figure this out for the 19th century because they have to come from somewhere, right, because they're, yeah. they're, quite, they're quite specific things, jokes, they're quite precise bits of language, so they can't just, you know, spring in, in, into life. So I found quite a bit of evidence of professional Victorian joke writers who literally earned a living churning them out, and You only get little glimpses of this because it's not a common profession. There's one guy, actually, he's an American um, joke writer, um, Thomas L. Masson, he was called, who was active sort of late 19th, early 20th century, and he claimed he could write as many as 100 jokes a day. He would just sit down with a little um, slip of paper and a pen, sometimes he would do it on the train on the way to work, and he would just sort of churn them out, one after the other after the other, and then he would send them off to magazines and try and sell them. He reckoned he wrote about 50,000 jokes over the course of his career, which just seems like mind-boggling to me. I've tried to write jokes and like, spent like, hours not m- being able to write one, but he obviously just had a knack for it. He could just churn them out. So, yeah, there are people who are earning a living doing this. Um, but the rest of it, you know, it's, it's amateurs as well, people making stuff up themselves.
1: You find a lot of them on postcards, don't you, with the Victorian mania for postcard collecting?
2: Yeah, which I guess it's like this, it's the equivalent of us sending jokes over text or WhatsApp or something, isn't it? You know, you, you, you often find them there as well. That's been a real... Um, holy grail for me is trying to find trying to find those because i've encountered them by accident a lot but actually deliberately discovering people cracking jokes on postcards is really tough but um, yeah there's, there's tons like that um you know people write them down in their diaries some people keep notebooks of their favorite jokes um yeah they're, they're, they they crop up everywhere and so it's gone from me thinking like oh, i wonder if i could find one or two victorian jokes at the start of this project to me literally building a database of millions of them mm. you know there are so many
1: and do they go viral and travel the world like our memes do now?
2: Yeah, this, this is one of my favorite things I've been researching with this. Is, um, it's sort of you're trying to figure out, okay, you've, you've written a joke. You know, how, does it, how does it circulate? How does, how does it travel around? And so, yeah, they circulate around through word of mouth, I guess, like, like jokes might do now, but also through something which is kind of like, like how Twitter works or like um, how you know, jokes on Facebook work where they've been copied and pasted. Because most of the surviving evidence of Victorian comedy is in newspapers, right? You know, they would have these um, regular joke columns, or they would use jokes as column fillers. And if you're a newspaper editor, and, you're, you know, you need to fill a bit of space, or you want to put in a bit of light relief in amongst all the politics, you're not necessarily going to write the jokes yourself or go find a comedian. The easiest thing to do is just steal them. So they would go through other magazines, other newspapers, wherever, you know, get their scissors out, clip out jokes, paste them in, and bit by bit, they go viral. So I've got... There's a joke. Um, I should probably tell you a Victorian joke. We're kind of, we're, we're kind of, um, we've got a long way in without me actually sharing one. So brace yourselves. Here's one that went viral. Okay. Um, so I'm trying to think of the best place to tell you this. So it's something like the, the version of it that goes viral is, there's a, did you hear about The Undertaker in America? Um, he has a sign outside of his shop that says, you kick the bucket, we do the rest. Which is not <laughs> that funny to us. I, mean, I, quite, I, I quite like it. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that because I I often do interviews about this over the radio and like honestly it's like tumbleweed follows me wherever I go whenever I'm talking about this just like awkward silences. I like that one. No Um, we are
1: both absolute wrong so hit us with your worst. This is great.
2: I'll I'll, I'll, (laughs) write. I've
1: I've
2: got plenty more. Google
1: by the way because um, there's a website that's come up with the 20 of your, from your website jokes. And I'm sitting here while we're talking, reading them and laughing to myself.
2: <laughs> Excellent. This is good. This is, I mean, I'm in good company then. This is, this is a relief. Um, yeah. Share, yeah, so, so share that, that,
1: some of your favourites with our listeners and I, I, us.
2: I will do in a bit. Yeah. Uh, just, let me tell you about that one first, that one that went viral, because the, the really weird thing about that is that I discovered that one about The Undertaker and it was being used in a speech by a conservative politician in Wales Like of all places, like how on earth does that happen? And so what I started doing is searching the phrase, you kick the bucket, and I put it into every digital archive I could find. And it turns out, I reckon the joke was written in New York, that it kind of bounced around America for a bit. And then eventually um, there was like an epidemic of pneumonia in this mining town out in the the wild west that was in the news. And suddenly that joke about there being an undertaker there with the sign just appeared all over America. Then it got imported to Britain. It appeared in like Horse and Hound magazine in Britain of all places. So it just, that, that one absolutely went viral. And I found tons of others cropping up in Australia wherever. It's a bit slower than now. You know, it might take a few months. Mm. But yeah, you, you could have, yeah, jokes like this. We don't know who wrote it or who came up with that. Maybe there was an Undertaker. But it will have been read by millions of people around the English-speaking world.
1: That's insane. Tell us some more.
2: All right. Okay, so my favorite ones are the really, really shockingly bad puns which are the kind of incredibly oh, forced dad um, jokes. ones. Yeah, it's sort of like great, great, great granddad jokes, isn't it? With these <laughs> ones. Um, so, so my favourite ones are these. They, they come from a book, um, which is just, this is another thing people can Google if, if they like terrible puns. It's called Puniana. Uh, it's from the, um, the middle of the 19th century. And it's about 300 pages of absolute, non-stop, terrible puns. And my favourite one, um, I don't know if it's favourite, it's just terrible, but I love how bad it is. It goes something like, if you were to kill a conversational goose, what vegetable would it allude to? Our sparrow goose. <laughs> Which is just like. <laughs> and, I mean, it's, ju- it's just so unbelievably forced. And I just kind of. I-, I love the fact that, you know, there's nothing natural, there's nothing kind of organic about that setup at all. Oh, it's that so is definitely
1: someone's granddad thinking they're <laughs> hilarious. I love that but, one. I'm using that one from now on. Thank you very yeah, much. I, I
2: literally can't eat asparagus without without cracking that joke at people now. It's sort of you know it is it, forever with me. Um. So, but it's interesting you said about like like somebody's great granddad thinking up because they also had um, literally competitive pun competitions in the nineteenth century where you would get like so you know like say a, a magician or a touring show comes into town and they do their normal show for a few weeks. Then like the last night in town. Um, some of them would often do this sort of grand pun competition where everybody in the local area was invited to send in their best puns or conundrums, they would, they would call them then. And they'd be read out on stage. And then like a committee of local gentlemen would be assembled to judge it. And then the winner would win something like a silver plated tea service or something. Uh, they're utterly terrible. If you think that one was bad, the ones I found in those competitions are like, they're about like obscure local politicians and monuments and streets that make absolutely no sense. But Apparently thousands of people would turn out to, to watch these things. It was an absolute sort of craze for coming up with good puns.
1: Give us another one.
2: This is can the problem. I, can they're I so, throw so one in here? Yeah, yeah, go for it, yeah.
1: Because cause I'm sitting on this on this site. So uh, this one's for Alex because I think you and I are going to love this one. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I say, which is the quickest way for me to get to the rail station? Run. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I like that one as well. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah. <laughs> A lot of my favourite ones are ones that were, um, like, my favourite subgenre of them are these ones where you have, like, a a man trying to um, flirt with a lady, uh, and then she absolutely just shoots him down, like, mercilessly. I've read about
1: this online of yours. You love these ones, don't you? Yeah, I've got a thread on Twitter of about a
2: 100 of them. All right, um, let me see one. So, okay, they're sort of written almost like little play scripts, so they're sometimes quite hard to to read. But, okay, so there's a man um, who's sort of well dressed in lavender blue gloves and a blue scarf, says to a lady, Oh, how I wish I were that book that you clasp so lovingly, to which she replies, how I wish you were, so that I could shut you up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. That's they're fun. absolutely
2: brutal. Yeah, there is, a, yeah, there's basically, if, if you go to the Victorian humour Twitter page, there's like a, the pinned tweet is a thread of about 150 Victorian burns like that, which are just, um, but they're kind of funny. It, it, we think of like, I guess the... The classic gender dynamic in the 19th century is this idea of women being sort of oppressed and meek and not necessarily having a voice. And these jokes are kind of a nice counter to that, you know, of of basically men looking foolish and women looking witty and smart. And it's, it's quite refreshing, I find it.
1: So I've got to ask you, know, so I really love the history of comedy like insofar as how we got from music halls to variety shows and things like Morecambe and Wise on the television yeah. and then how that evolved into things like Porridge and Only Fools and Horses. But I have to know, have we always, as Brits, had the complete preoccupation with willies and boobs?
2: Mm, yeah, I, I, I think probably, yeah. I mean, it, it's a sort of <laughs> fundamental bit of comedy, right? So, But the interesting thing about the Victorians is that they're often regarded as being this sort of... Um, I suppose they kind of break in that tradition. So if you look at 18th century comedy or even sort of Georgian, you know, early 19th century comedy, it's filled with that stuff. It's all mm. sort of bums and farts and bodily humour. And the classic narrative is that the Victorians come in with their kind of prudery and sweep all that away. And then it's only later that we rediscover, you know, the joy of joking about sex and all that kind of stuff. The truth, though, is that the Victorians absolutely continue to joke about that stuff. They just didn't do it as publicly. So um, I give you a nice example of this. So Punch yeah, magazine, yeah, give us is, some it,
1: smutty jokes from correct. Victorian.
2: Sure. Punch magazine, obviously, is that the classic Victorian respectable comedy magazine, middle class kind of literary highbrow stuff. But every week, uh, Punch's writers and cartoonists would meet to have a, a kind of a dinner and get drunk, and they would plan what was going to go in the magazine. And we have amazingly the diaries of one of the guys who was there, who reported on what they chatted about around the table. So we think a punch has been, oh, you know, it's it's jokes about Gladstone and all kind of, you know, highbrow stuff. And supposedly one of these dinner parties, they were just chatting like that. And then Shirley Brooks, who's a ninth century writer, just butted in, you know, interrupting a conversation about Disraeli or something. He just says, I say, if you put your head between your legs, what planet do you see? Uranus. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like the most stupidly childish joke and, and I just love the idea of all these like the greatest wits in the 19th century gathered around a table and like and they uh, supposedly Thackeray was there he was absolutely beside himself with laughter at this and then started cracking on jokes about his own um inability to pee and all this kind of stuff so yeah there's there's tons of that stuff in the 19th century the most risque stuff um Oh, I should have prepared these. There's a, there's a pornographic magazine in the 19th century called The Pearl, which kind of circulated behind closed doors. Yeah. And they have absolutely, utterly filthy limericks. Like even now, eye-wateringly graphic limericks about STDs and, and all sorts of stuff. So all that stuff was, that was absolutely circulating in the 19th century. The problem for me as a historian is that people didn't write it down. You know, they, they didn't print it all the joke books will have a little blurb at the front saying I can assure you this is perfectly safe to show to your wife and to your children and things like that which mean that people were telling those other jokes right but frustratingly they were kind of being censored from the public record so it's, it's my mission it, like if I could discover like a, a handwritten book of dirty Victorian jokes I think I would be the happiest I'll ever be but um, you
1: can't but, hang that out there about the really smutty eye-watering lyrics and then yeah. not share I know, I will have everybody few... is now sitting there going yeah. i want one i want one
2: yeah give me one second i should have um, <laughs> i should have had this um that's
1: okay i can edit the breakout cool.
2: yeah sure should so um, but if people want to find it if you if you google the pearl um, magazine you will find on on wiki source there are um there are like various volumes of it so these are, are kind of um kind of like they're described actually in the magazine as quote nursery rhymes but um okay here's, here's <laughs> the very very first one it is very much not nursery rhyme so there was a young man of Bombay who fashioned a cunt out of clay, but the heat of his prick turned it into a brick and chafed all his foreskin away. <laughs> <laughs> I That's love 18- that one. 1879, everybody. The height of sort of mid-Victorian respectability. Um, the th- there are one. dozens of them. All right. Um, oh, oh me. Um, <laughs> there was a young man of Peru who had nothing whatever to do, so he took out his carrot and buggered his parrot and sent the results to the zoo. <laughs>
1: Oh, my God, Alina, oh you They're just amazing. made her year. Yeah, there are... year.
2: Here's another one. Um, there was a young lady of Hitchin who was scratching her cunt in the kitchen. Her father said, Rose, it's the crab, I suppose. You're right, pal, the buggers are no, <laughs>
0: So, Ready to pop the question?
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. <laughs>
2: I, like, I don't know how many Victorians were telling this kind of stuff, but it suggests it's happening, right? The, the Vic, we think of the Victorians as being so respectable, but there are absolutely kind of lads of the Victorian era who enjoy getting drunk and sleeping around and, and joking about this kind of stuff. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's a tiny fraction of what survived. Sadly, I would, I would give love us more of one this kind more because
1: Elena's absolutely oh, loving um, those. Do you know I'm what? I just, just to find... had to mute myself so I could calm myself down. <laughs> <laughs> I just,
2: I'm just trying to find. Um... Oh, blimey! Okay, so we, we've had sort of sexual humour, here it's kind of bodily humour. There was a young man of wood green who tried to fart. God save the queen! When he reached the soprano, he shot his guano, and his breeches weren't fit to be seen. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that. that that feels very kind of like Georgian, 18th century, kind of Gilray satirical stuff to me. But that stuff is definitely still happening. It's just not, it's just not, not in that kind of public Victorian culture, sadly. But the, <laughs> in the musical, you kind of get hints of it, right? That's, that's what musicals so clever at. It yeah. would never be this, this kind of blunt. But, you know, with a raised eyebrow and a slight play on words, you can sort of get away with it a little yeah. bit. Yeah,
1: and it's very much getting into like Frankie Howard and Ronnie Barker, isn't it?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of innuendo there, and, and it, yeah. it's a very carefully kind of—it's a tightrope that you've got to walk when you're doing that because, the, you know, the reason why these kind of limericks weren't being printed in the Times or anywhere else is that there there is a big part of Victorian culture which was a trying to fight against obscenity, trying to stop the circulation of things like pornography. The yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. It, or the killjoy part. I suppose, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It's hard, it's, it's right? Because a lot of this stuff, like some of the opinions in these things are pretty reprehensible to us now. But yeah, they are sort of fun as well. And I, I, I do love that disreputable side of Victoria.
1: Tell us why the Victorians love Yankee humour and who RG Knowles was.
2: Oh, right. OK, so this is, um, so this is one of the things that really surprised me when I, when I was doing this research, really early on when I started working on it years ago. Because I think when we think of um, Britain's relationship with America, and particularly like consuming American culture, the classic narrative is that it comes in with like Hollywood in, in the 20th century, right? After the First World War, Britain's on its knees, America sweeps in, and so on and so forth. What I discovered, though, um, this is going way back to my, my PhD thesis, is that actually an enormous amount of American pop culture circulates in Victorian Britain, and by far and away, the most popular form of that are jokes. So that um, that joke about The Undertaker is an American one that got imported. But there are thousands of others. And in fact, the most popular newspapers in the country, like ones that are reaching a million people or more a week, had from around about the 1880s onwards, a regular weekly column of imported American jokes that they clipped from from American newspapers.
1: All things American were so fashionable at that point. Though. And the, nearly, or it's like the 1870s, isn't it, where Churchill's mother comes over at the mm. beginning of. Um, and there's a whole spate of American heiresses in london and america being fashionable isn't there
2: yeah it's sort of it, it's sort of like america's position in britain is always slightly kind of ambiguous isn't it because there's some people who love it and really embrace it and others who turn their nose up at it and, and the same is true in the 19th century but i've found way more jokes imported from america than i've found jokes about america if you know what i mean it's like mm. people seem to be laughing with it more than at it a lot more than I would have expected and in fact there, there are tons of sort of anxious think pieces from the 19th century saying like oh the Americans are funnier than us you know that their their humor is much more sort of modern and fresh and exciting and we're all boring and we don't have any new jokes and so like, that idea of Britain having this kind of much more refined sense of humor and American humor being a little bit you know well I suppose less good than, than I was in the 19th century it's the exact opposite there is this feeling that America is the land of comedy and the new and the fresh and Britain is kind of you know, lost its spark a bit.
1: And who was Knowles?
2: Oh yeah, Knowles. So Knowles is one of the kind of stars of the Victorian and Edwardian musical. Um, started out as a, as a comedian in, in the States, but then comes over to Britain. And yeah, he, he would have been an absolute household name in the, in the sort of 1880s, 1890s uh, time. And yeah, and he was one of those patter comedians I was mentioning earlier, um, who was particularly famous. He did sing songs and do a bit of a dancing and all that kind of stuff, um, but he was most famous for his stories which are close to kind of narrative stand-up, you know, they're not just one-liners, you know, they're kind of building up over the course of a paragraph, um, and he talked incredibly quickly, you know, he's that kind of, that classic kind of, um, like, manic. like Mark, Mark, yeah, like, kind of think of the Marx Brothers, that kind of really yeah. quick, punny kind of, you know. Or like
1: Robin Williams used to get like that, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Richard that, that... Pryor, like, that, that manic yeah,
2: and Knowles was, was, was like that. The, the first people who, I've got like nice accounts of like the first time he appeared in London and people talk about it being like, like they were hit by a whirlwind that had just come onto stage and they had no idea, you know, who this guy was or what he was doing. But he was, I think, really pioneering what we would think of as stand-up. And, you know, and as I say, he was American. It wasn't as if that was a hidden thing. He was always talked about as being that American humorist, that American comedian, as if it was a big part of his, um, his, his identity. Like, oh, like, one of the biggest regrets in my life is that his top hat, which was like his, his signature item, his beat-up top hat, was for sale on eBay about five years ago, and I didn't bid on it. And, like, every day I regret not buying, not buying his oh, top hat. Oh, no. It's heartbroken, yeah. It's like, it's, gonna haunt, it's like my white whale. It's going to haunt me for, for the oh. rest of my life that I never got his top hat. It's out a, there somewhere. I have
1: a tree frog necklace in Rome like that that I should have just damn well bought.
2: Yeah. The, the really frustrating thing is it didn't sell. It's in a guy's garage somewhere, and now he can't find it.
1: No. Like so I, you I, I, know,
2: I it. I know. Right. I, I literally I, I'm so tempted just to go and like, knock on his door and say, I'm not leaving. <laughs> i <I'll laughs> for and it. find me that top out <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll pay anything.
1: <laughs> so a challenge. How do we, we how do we research the history of joking and what forms of joking are difficult for historians to recover?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's sort of what we're talking about, about, about that that risque humour is definitely harder to find. But the other stuff is just like conversational humor. So, you know, anything of you know, people just cracking jokes in amongst themselves is, is, is really difficult to find. I've been really struggling and really, I've been really trying to find Victorian women cracking jokes because I'm absolutely certain that that. You know, women told jokes in the nineteenth century that they had a sense oh, of humor. Queen
1: Mary loved it. She also said as well she couldn't laugh in public um, because she had such a vulgar, like booming, dirty laugh <laughs> that she she loved a good joke, but she would like try and restrain herself from from letting anyone hear her laugh. But yeah, I just yeah,
2: I think, I that, think that, she's that, written
1: that, any down, damn it.
2: Yeah, that that's the frustrating thing. So there are some. That I found one uh, professional female joke writer who was working in New York um who was also working in the advertising industry who made a bit of a living you know writing writing jokes but that's sort of joking in in everyday conversation for women I'm really struggling to find evidence of that though I'm, I'm like 100% certain it, it's happening because why wouldn't it be um but yeah um, so that, that's tricky so the stuff that has survived the stuff I tend to do most of my research on sadly is is the humor largely of white middle-class men mm. who had access to newspapers and punch magazine so I, I'm I'm really trying to sort of work against that narrative because we've heard enough from them in the 19th century. I think there are there are other people and I really want to get it at what ordinary people, what women, children, um, people from other sort of areas were joking about. And I found bits. So one of the best sources I found recently was a a popular newspaper that ran a a joke competition. It was up in Dundee. And Mm. you just had loads of, of readers submitting stuff to them. But the best thing is that every joke they print, they also print the name and address of the person who sent it in. So you can find them in the census, and then like figure out, you know, what they were about, and yeah, and it turned out about 20% of the entrants were women. Oh, so, brilliant! You know, so they were—they definitely were participating in this, but it's yeah, it's frustrating. I always feel like I'm only getting—I guess this is true of all history, right? We only get very partial views, but with joking in particular, it seems to, to privilege a very particular type of person in terms of what jokes were written down.
1: So, they liked puns, and they liked smart. Britons have always liked smart but what about things like what about black humor and sarcasm because they're popular now she says is one of the most sarcastic individuals on the face <laughs> yeah. of the planet
2: yeah i have definitely found hints of it um occasionally you get actually a lot of those um those burn jokes you know where you have um, men and women sort of chatting that they sort of work on on sarcastic cutting responses so yeah you do get that i think sarcasm is often harder to convey in print and um, your know, intent—it's in, often something that comes through body language or tone of voice, isn't it? So that's sometimes a bit harder to find. Dark humour, again, I've found bits of that. That's again, that's harder to discover. So, so one it's of the, always um,
1: been a response, hasn't it, to like soldiers and policemen, and and a black dark humour has always been a response to processing awful yeah. things. I mean, they definitely have that in the First World War, so it must be there mm. um, before then as well.
2: I'm certain, yeah. So actually, I, I can think of some examples. So, like right in the midst of the, the Ripper murders, for instance, which obviously you know really serious thing, there are tons of jokes about Jack the Ripper being cracked all around society. So there was there was one that was reported in a society newspaper, where supposedly you know a kind of a rich gentleman had been cutting up an apple pie, and a woman had remarked, "Oh, I say, look at him! Look at Jack the Ripper cutting up his tart." <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's sort of like, yeah, you know, that's, that's pushing it. A bit. And this wow. is like right in the middle of the murders. There was another one, one of those conundrum competitions. Yeah. It was like um, a Victorian tailor called, um, amazingly called Randall, the Taylor King of Norwich, and uh, ran a competition um, to like, for people to write conundrums about him. And, and the, the prize was literally like a, a prize pig that he was exhibiting in his window. It's a bizarre world. Mm. But um, one of the jokes for that was something like, I say, I say, you know, why is Randall the Taylor King of Norwich like Jack the Ripper? because he's an expert cutter out you know and that was sort of right in the middle of of that too so
1: so that's like the equivalent i mean as soon as something horrible happens sycopedia goes mad doesn't it whether it be um, jade goody or whether it be madeline mccann you instantly something awful happens then the awful horrible jokes about it will start as well and it just doesn't seem that they were any different to us in that respect
2: no i'm sure that's happening and again it's just a case of what gets recorded so for instance like you can sort of see those distinctions where like you don't get many Victorian jokes about things like religion or death or, you know, subjects that they think were serious. Yeah. But actually you get tons of American ones about that. And they're quite happy for Americans to tell those jokes and to reprint them in Britain, but to say, oh, well, of course an American would say that. And you yeah, know, um, well, they were rapidly
1: so... going around building churches, weren't they? And, uh,
2: the Victorians. Hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, religion's obviously a major part of And death they take massively seriously. Yeah, so you, get, you do get jokes about undertakers and about doctors, and in fact, actually, the, the classic Victorian joke about a doctor is usually that they, that they kill their patients, you know, that, that, that's the thing, is that they're clumsy or that they, they don't care about their patients living, or they only care about their patients living if they're going to pay them, so you do get little bits like that, that's quite, I suppose that's quite dark, but um, not, not as much as you would expect, at least not in that public culture of, in, you know, the respectable newspaper.
1: But we spoke to John Wolfe a few weeks ago about his Victorian freak show book. And we talked about terminology and he explained why he believed that you could use the term freak now in today's Mm -hmm. woke fest, um, because it very much a a Victorian freak is a performer. It's not the person Mm -hmm. it's who they are when they're on stage. So that's how he's decided to process the terminology. So he will refer to the freak show because it's a persona that they assume. It's not just the human being um how do you do things like there must be a wealth of like racist jokes and things that are just thoroughly unacceptable now mm. um and when you're presenting those how do you go about it or do you just go about it and just this is it warts and all this is what the victorians found fun and we just have to be educated by that we we know that it's not right to tell that joke now um or do you police what you put out
2: this is this is something I've been thinking about a lot, particularly recently, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really tricky. And I guess like any kind of historical interpretation, it's about context, isn't it? So if I put stuff out on, on Twitter, on the Victorian Humor account, I think what I'm sort of doing with that, by and large, is inviting people to laugh at them or to enjoy them. You know, I'm not necessarily contextualizing them and saying, mm. you know. So in, in that case, what I've generally done, though you know, occasionally I've made mistakes on this, is I've tried to put out material that wouldn't, be considered too offensive these days but god what where do you draw the line on that because there's so much victorian humor that's misogynist or are jokes about the irish okay if not are jokes about the french okay at what point do we sort of become anxious about that they're actually putting stuff out on twitter i've sort of and just looking at what people retweet you can see what people are happy to share it's like jokes at the expense of husbands are way more popular than jokes at the expense of wives because people sense the kind of power dynamic there so for, for Twitter, I've generally tried to, partly because I'm sort of worried about whatever I do being decontextualized by mm. somebody retweeting it. So I've been much more cautious there. For other things, though, for for, um, for the archive I'm building or for, for public talks, I think, you, you know, obviously you don't want to be censoring the past there because those racist jokes are a part of history. But, they're, you know, they're part of the thing that shaped black people's experiences in the past as well, right? They were having to live with those jokes. And for us to ignore them is to sort of deny that those ideas existed or that those jokes are being told and the power they might've had. So I, I do believe that it's really important to continue to look at them. I suppose it's the difference between presenting a joke for analysis and telling a joke.
1: Yeah. I and, think and that, what the they thing. do on UK gold, I'm fine with, so they will, I mean, there's an, there's an episode of only Fools and Horses where they're talking about a corner shop. And in the first scene, they use the P word about four times. And that is, mm. um, silenced out now when they put that episode out but if they're putting something like 40 towers on where the whole Mm. thing is built on a humor that's just inappropriate now they just Mm. say just remember this was made 40 years ago people had a different sense of humor then and that should be enough I think
2: I agree I think by and large I'm I prefer not to see that kind of stuff massively censored but yes as long as it's been contextualized as long as we're thinking critically about it then I think that's I think that's fine. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do with this material. But I'm conscious that, you know, so I'm building this archive of all these jokes. There will be an enormous number of, of, of racist and unpleasant jokes in there. And I sort of wonder what kind of resource am I creating there for people who might want to use it in ways that I don't have control over. Mm. And that's, that, gives, that makes me anxious, to be honest. But I think... I guess The alternative you know, it, it, it,
1: is censoring history, isn't it? It is.
2: And every, you know, if you think about all the museums, there's tons of, of deeply problematic things in museums. There always have been. And one of the things they're incredibly accomplished at doing is contextualizing that and presenting it in a way that helps us to understand it. And I think that's, that's sort of what I want to do. But yeah, I'll be honest. I, whenever, I, you know, I, I suppose I am censoring myself slightly when I'm sharing them on Twitter, just because I think it's so hard to contextualize and demonstrate intent in a tweet.
1: Oh, and it is a cesspool, obviously.
2: Yeah, and there was one time when I, I did tweet an anti-Irish joke and um, somebody got really, really upset with me um, and was like saying the British, because I I, this project I'm doing is sort of in partnership with the British Library and was saying, you know, how dare they spread this kind of stuff. And I thought it was a pretty kind of good-natured ribbing in the way that we kind of have jokes about the Irish, the French, and they have jokes about us back. And I've always sort of thought, okay, that's kind of, I think that's okay yeah one but, but, of my
1: favorite things was to ask all the foreign bartenders I had what country their country i mean apparently Hungary and Slovakia are always going at each other um yeah. Poland and Germany love like mocking each other, and it was oh, quite yes. funny it 's like every country has got their country that they just rip it out of
2: yeah I think perhaps the kind of anglo irish thing is there's sort there's the sort of, sort of mock baggage there isn't there and I sort of wonder I started wondering okay hey look as as, as an Englishman is it really up to me to decide if this is okay and so I, by and large i stopped tweeting obviously anti-irish stuff just because actually they're not even that, that funny now to be honest the victorian mm. ones so there's not a great deal lost in those ones but yeah it's it's a it's a tricky thing and it, it's sort of shaping how i how i'm trying to present this stuff um but where we can give more context like in an archive like in a talk i think then yeah you've got to look at it full in the face mm. and accept that it happened
1: can you tell us about the old joke archive
2: Yes. So this is the project I was talking about. It's um, effectively, when I started researching comedy, one of the problems I had was just that how hard it is to find it. You know, like what I've been talking about in this, this chat here is that, oh, how many jokes there were and, and, and how many you know, millions of them there are. But actually, if you want to find a Victorian joke on a specific topic, it's quite difficult to do. They're kind of they're buried in you know, acres and mountains of print of newspapers and books. So in order to make it easier for people to research comedy, and maybe if if it's just a little part of a project, I wanted to create an archive where people could go to find it. So hopefully within the next few months, we'll be ready to launch our first prototype of this. Um, And it will be eventually a, a digital archive completely free to use filled with, hopefully in the end, millions of historical jokes from every time period, every place. And you'll better go into it and say, right, show me every joke about lawyers featuring a pun published in Liverpool between 1850 and 1852, or you know, however specific you want to be. Mm. And hopefully it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a resource that means that sort of history of joking and comedy stops being neglected. Because if you think about it, whatever you might be researching, there's a good chance somebody told jokes about it. And those jokes tell us so much about the society that produces them. But at the moment, yeah, they're really hard to find. You can't go into the British library and say, show me all your jokes. You know, there are millions in there, but they're all buried. So that's the idea behind the old joke archive. It'll be the world's first archive dedicated to that kind of ephemeral historical humor that, you know, I think is really important to people in the past, but that we've since forgotten.
1: I love it. Um, good luck with that. Uh, before you go, give Alina one more of those um, rhymes because you've just oh, absolutely blimey. made a day. She's cackling away. Let me see if I can find it. I'll try, <laughs> I'm trying to
2: find one of my favourite ones. Um, oh, by me, okay. Right, this is this is this is an, all right. Another sort of sexual one. Okay, there was a young lady of Harrow who complained that her cunt was too narrow. For times without number, she would use a cucumber, but could not accomplish a marrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear yeah yeah again the victorians everybody <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> on that note thank you so much for coming and
2: making oh, us it's, laugh it's, it's, it's been pleasure. a
1: really miserable day of topics here on history hack <laughs> so you've absolutely brightened our day
2: oh my pleasure thank you for laughing at my jokes <laughs>
1: that's so good literally she is gonna do no work ever again Join us tomorrow. Sergei Pelukin will be with us to talk all about Russians on the Western Front in World War I. He's a great mate of mine. I love him. He's brilliant and he tells an absolutely great story. So you can find out the lesser known story of all these poor Russians that ended up in France during World War I, instead of fighting on their own front and what happened when the revolution came about and the problems of what to do with them. Really interesting stuff. And he gives you some great tips on where to go on the battlefields to look into this some more for yourselves. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the
0: jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more